What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and with us tonight we have Joshua Davidson, Robert hey. Wiesner, and uh, Chris Date. So, guys, what is going on? Josh, how's your week been going, brother, since the last time we've been on? My week has been uh, really fast-paced for me. Monday was a holiday, and so it kind of threw me up for a loop, and I've been thinking that I'm a, a day behind all week long. And so uh, my mind has it in, mm-hmm. it in it that today is Thursday, but I'm acting as though it's Friday. It's kind of conflicting. So this week has been really fast-forward for me. I like holiday weekends, bro, because like you get the weekend, you get a chance to rest. And I don't know, I just I just love a three-day weekend. Some of the guys, actually, that uh, that work at our company, they didn't get a three-day weekend. They had to work on on Saturday, mm-hmm. but I didn't. So <laughs> it was, it was, uh, was kind of nice. But it, it, makes the, it makes all the garbage utilities a day late and everything. It just kind of throws yeah. me for a loop because I have my mm-hmm. very scheduled. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. You are, brother. So, Chris Date, what is going on, man? It's been a while since you guys have been on. Um, how, how have you been since the last time you've been on? Uh, I've been really well by God's grace. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, yes, nothing in particular to, uh, to, to stay other than at some point today, maybe we could talk about the book project that Robert and I are going to get to work on, uh, over the coming nice. months. Um, but yeah, things are, things are going really Ooh. well. Thanks for having me. Matt, let's, let's go ahead and dive into that. Let's we'll plug that a little bit, Chris, if you don't mind. Yeah, so Paul Copan, whom most of your audience will recognize, I, at least I'd like to think so, he and I are co-editing a Two Views of Hell book, and we think that it's going to be something unique, something that doesn't yet exist within the literature Um and namely, you know, if you think about multi-view books, without mm-hmm. exception, all of them I'm aware of are uh, each view is represented by a single author. And that single author right. is, of course, coming at the topic from his or her uh, discipline, her, her his or her specialty, right? Mm-hmm. So you might have a biblical theologian over here, a philosopher over there, whatever. But uh, but but nevertheless, it's, it's one single discipline in any given one of these contributions in these multi-view books. Well, what Paul Copan mm-hmm. and I decided we wanted to do was have a multidisciplinary um, multi-views book. So the long and the short of it is we're going to have six scholars representing six different disciplines on each of the two sides of the debate. Um, so a biblical theology contribution, an exegesis contribution, systematic theology, historical theology, um, philosophy, and practical theology or pastoral theology. So we have six different scholars on each of the two sides of the debate representing those six fields. They'll each have a positive contribution for their side of the debate, and then each of them will respond to their counterpart on the other side. Okay. So Robert Wiesner, for example, is the historical theology contributor on the eternal torment side. I am the exegesis contributor on the uh, conditional immortality side. And we've got other people that are contributing, um, Glenn Peoples, uh, Matt Flanagan, Paul Williamson from Moore College down in Australia, um, Linda Belleville, uh, a phenomenal exegete who's most known for her work on uh, the egalitarianism debate. So, and that's just a sampling of the names. So, we think it's going to bring something really unique to the to the literature that doesn't yet exist, and not just on this topic, but like the whole multi-view kind of genre. Um, now, maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of it than it actually is, but it sounds like a big deal to me. So, 
I know, man. That's so, I should so- say, I should say, and we're doing it for IVP Academic. So all the other books I've done have been either Whip and Stock, which is relatively small, or an independent publisher. But this book will be IVP Academic, so it's going to be widely read. I think used in many um, seminary uh, contexts and things like that. So is there a is title your- chosen for the book already? Uh, we have a tentative working title. It's just simply what is hell question mark followed by the subtitle, a multidisciplinary dialogue. But the reality is that with big publishers like IVP, they are the ones who ultimately come up with the title. And so who knows what it'll end up being. Mm-hmm. Can I ask Chris, how far along are you guys into it? Do you have a release date like maybe, you know, envisioned or is it still too far to tell yet? Uh, it's probably too too far to tell. Um, the final contributions, specifically the responses to the positive cases, those are due um, at the latest, I think, in May of okay. 2022. Um, now, what that means, though, is that the book probably won't actually be published until very late 2022 or early 2023. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, definitely be on the lookout for that, man. Let me know whenever it gets closer to that release date, man. I'll plug that for sure. And definitely get a copy because, honestly, I mean, Chris is the reason I started to look into this, you know, subject. Because I really, and I think, I don't know if this might be a lot, and and Chris, maybe you can, you know, jump in on this if you want to. But I think that maybe this might be secondary for a lot of Christians to actually study, right? And so whenever I first heard about this debate, I wasn't too sure where I stood. And so, well, I I guess I would say no, more so I was leaning toward eternal conscious punishment. And so now though, actually after diving in, listening to Chris over at Rethinking Hell, I mean, amazing YouTube channel, loads of content over there. So I definitely recommend that for anybody, you know, interested in the subject. But after I started listening, I wanted, I wanted more, first of all, but I really got to think, you know, and, and thinking about this subject. And so Chris has really been a big help, both him and Robert you know, have been a big help to me in my journey in this. And so, guys, I just want to thank you again for, you know, coming on for this Q&A. And if you got a question for Chris or Robert or Josh or me, hit us up. one 450 is that number to dial. So if you got a question, uh, call us, ask it, and hopefully we will we'll have an answer for you. Uh, but, Josh, uh, real quick, man, do you have anything? I know you haven't been a part, really, of the conversations that we have had maybe one um but do you have any questions for chris for robert you know just kind of starting out where would you want to uh, go in this discussion um you know off the top of my head uh something separate than what we discussed before i i would i kind of am curious what set you guys on your journey of having such a a primary study on this arena to be so informed about this one particular topic why this topic and do you guys think that it's because it's in some sense um uh uh, just something that struck your interest or is it genuinely more important than a lot of the other topics so for me i was really uh thrust into it when i was a first year bible college student and a professor who i i respected a ton still have a uh uh relationship with he taught me greek taught me hebrew um he espoused a view like chris's very strongly in fact probably with less nuance than than what chris brings and um i was 
especially at that time, very much the kind of student who liked to argue. <laughs> and so um, that sent me into books and, and because that was, it was very different from what I had ever been exposed to by somebody who believed that the Bible was the authoritative word of God. And um, the listeners who, who caught the episodes that I was on before may know that uh, I have a special interest in Second Temple Judaism. And it's interesting when you dive into that literature, uh, you find that this notion about the nature of eschatological judgment isn't just something that needs to be tagged on to the end of your, your systematic theology. It's actually something that's far more central in uh, the vision of the world and what God is accomplishing in Christ when you understand the setting of early Christianity within its context of, of Judaism, uh, there, there's a, a it, it touches a lot more than you might realize. It's far more central. Uh, the idea of, of God vindicating his people, judging their enemies, and uh, restoring the cosmos, and how he's going to do that. What role uh, the Gentiles have, and it will all Israelites participate in the resurrection? Will everybody be resurrected? Who's going to be judged? Which groups are in? Which groups are out? All this stuff is actually driving some of the questions, um, mm. you know, especially in, say, the book of Romans that we don't appreciate. Um, it, it really is driving that question more than, than we realize if we don't know that context. So that's what's kept me in it. But uh, I'm at a point where I'm it's not a pet topic for me the way it is for Chris. And so when I'm done with this book project, I'm probably going to hang up my hat on the discussion and, and just let Chris have it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Well, well I, it sounds I, like I, what you're saying is that it's kind of more central to the gospel to, to talk about God's justice is actually part of the gospel. And I, I agree there. I can see why that would become something that would be of like a, a more primary interest for at least some length of time. Robert, let me ask you this if I can, uh, or go, go ahead, and then let me jump in and uh, ask you a question real quick. Okay, yeah, so f first of all, I just want to say really quickly, um, I'm a little saddened to hear that Robert may be hanging up his hat, because he is, in my view, um, one of the friendliest and most respectful, kindest, most loving interlocutors I've had on the topic. Uh, and I mean that, Robert, I, I consider you a, a friend, and I'm really... Um, uh, blessed and grateful to not only be able to count you as a friend, but also to be able to have you on this book project and, and, and not just the book project, but our conversation on unbelievable and, and now our conversation here. So, but I understand you not wanting it to be your pet, pro, uh, pet topic uh, to, to answer the question. Why is it my pet topic? Well, first, let me say, I do think the topic is central in the way that Robert's talking about, but I don't necessarily think that's central in terms of importance. I think it's more like central in terms of the number of tendrils that the topic has into other areas of theology. So like, for example, if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle, any given piece in the jigsaw puzzle has four adjacent pieces that it's got to fit with, right? Well, and, and if you have the other pieces in place, you can tell what the shape mm. of the piece look like and vice versa um mm -hmm. well i think hell is kind of like a puzzle piece except instead of having like four adjacent pieces it's got like 18 right there's so many different topics within christian theology that it, that it <laughs> correlates with that it, that it touches that if you get this wrong i think it will have an impact on other uh, other areas of your theology 
But I don't think it's central in terms of importance. I don't think it's an essential of the faith the way that the deity of Christ is, the doctrine of the Trinity, salvation by grace through faith alone, the resurrection of the dead, etc. Um, I'm not even convinced that it's of secondary importance, the kind of thing that might prevent people from fellowshipping together. Uh, so, for example, egalitarians and complementarians, I think, for the most part, can consider each other brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're going to have a hard time going to the same church because the complementarians aren't going to be happy with a, you know, a female pastor, but the egalitarians aren't going to be comfortable with a rule that says there can't be a female pastor, right? I don't even think this topic um, rises to that level. So then the question still remains, well, why is it a pet topic of mine? And quite simply, it goes back to what I said earlier about Robert. He is the kindest, friendliest, most respectful and loving interlocutor I've had on, I've, I've had on this topic in a sea of absolute a-holes. And, and I mean that uh, on both sides of the debate. This is a topic that, that unjustifiably tends to produce more heat than light. And it's, I think, I inexcusable. That. I think it's inexcusable, and I think it grieves the heart of God that so many of his people ostracize and, and anathematize people who hold to a different view of hell. And so what keeps me going is the knowledge that people like me are still being excluded from churches, excluded from schools, excluded from ministries, Um and as soon as that no longer happens, and the debate between traditionalism and conditionalism is pretty much the same kind of thing as a debate between, say, Calvinism and non-Calvinists, mm -hmm. you know, or, or uh, continuationism versus cessationism, once this debate is like that in the sense that you can have two people in the same church who each hold a different view— um, and, and two professors at the same school who hold to a different view. When it's like that, by and large, across um, Christendom, I think that that's when I may no longer make this a pet topic. I hope that answers the question. Right, right. No, and, and we're right yeah, on board I'd with you, Chris. Yeah. yeah, and we're right on board with you, man. I mean, the, the bridge needs to happen. There needs to be no division amongst amongst brothers on this topic at all. I mean, just... Just, just for me, no way. You know what I mean. But, but I am curious, Robert, um, because this isn't, you know, one of your primary topics that you deal with. What I do want to ask you, beginning this study, what's the primary thing now that stands out to you that you didn't maybe know that, you know, before you know diving into this book project with Chris, what's the primary thing that stands out to you? Like I said, that you didn't know going into this, going into studying this this topic. Yeah, yeah. Was there something that you learned, you know, during the study that yeah. you didn't know before? That yeah, oh, I, okay. I I keep on learning. Um, yeah. So you know, one thing was how uh, I I think that every traditionalist, and I don't care for the term, but but we'll use it, um, should have the integrity to acknowledge that um, uh, people like Chris can make a, a case that that sounds pretty compelling. Uh, again, I'm not, you know, we're going to see, I'm not ultimately convinced of it, but it's not unreasonable. It's not a stupid view. There's, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of texts in the Bible that talk about divine judgment in terms of, of God killing the wicked or, or destroying, you know, uh, destroying them. Right. So uh, it's, it's not a stupid view. It's not an implausible view, impossible view or anything like that. We, we need to have a, uh, the integrity to say, hey, you know, th this is something we should be grappling with, um, even if we, we think we have good reasons for uh, continuing to hold the traditional view, which which I do. Um, and also, the, the longer I get into the study of Scripture, uh, recently I've, I've, I've 
taken a step back and decided I wanted to, um, in my own personal study, to to revisit some issues in, in hermeneutics. And just learning about the complexity of that and the way that modernist constructs and, and the way that our questions uh, kind of dictate the way that we read the Bible and oftentimes, you know, for theology and oftentimes impose questions on the Bible that are so foreign to the, the intention of the authors that they, they lead us to, to, to read it in really strange ways that the, the authors would say, I n- never meant for you to go there with, with that text, you know? Um, right, and so right. there, that leaves a lot more room for a lot more questions and ambiguity. And so I think that there's space for some healthy humility on all sides of this debate uh, to, to just say, hey, you know, I'm not certain this is where I'm leaning. And, and uh, maybe I hope Chris is right, or maybe I hope uh, universalists are right. And, and, and I'm okay with that as well. Uh, so it, yeah, I guess, I guess I, I find myself surprised with how my certainty wanes the, the more information I get. <laughs> right. so, let me, l- yeah. let me, let me follow up with this. And then Chris, uh, let me get your input on this. What you mentioned something that I kind of want to hit on Robert. What is that missing key that is just the, you know, you put the brakes on and say, this is missing, you know, or is there something okay. that would yeah. convince you of conditional immortality or even universalism yeah. in that sense? Yeah. So there, there's another number of ways we can approach that. If, um, I would say what would what would really probably make me really ready to fall over the edge is if I was convinced by the exegetical arguments regarding uh, the the vision of eschatological punishment in the Book of Revelation, because um, I, I've come to a place where I understand through progressive revelation and through historical exegesis uh, in particularly in the Old Testament, that there's not as much to glean from there as what conditionalists will argue, that, that we're actually um, uh, not respecting what those biblical authors were trying to do with those texts if we formulate a view of eschatological punishment there. So then we have to ask, where do we get a full and clear picture of this? And of course, you've got the issues of the genre of the book of Revelation, but what I think you have in Revelation is a very detailed uh, two-stage judgment where there is uh, God showing up as you get in apocalyptic literature, God uh, God appearing, uh, wiping out the enemies of his people, followed by a resurrection and a courtroom judgment, and the sentence that God passes on the wicked who are resurrected and judged is to be cast into the lake of fire, and uh, John comments and says they will be tormented day and night, and they will have no rest. And so, I, I because of the way I read that, and I'm not persuaded by alternative exegetical arguments. That is still kind of the the thing that's holding it. Uh, I could, and I'm just I'm talking. I've talked about integrity, uh, so I'm going to have some right now. Um, I opened to the possibility that I, I could discover arguments and, and change my view on that. And, and Chris um, has made some, some good arguments, but ultimately I, I think they lack validation in the most important places. And so I remain unconvinced, but uh, I, I would say that's what it would take would, would be a stronger exegetical case. And maybe that will happen and I'll happily change views and, and, and join Chris if, if that happens. 
Right, right. Chris, what what are you, uh what are your comments on that? And then, you know, kind of same question to you. What's that missing piece from Robert that's, you know, missing to bring you back on the eternal conscious punishment side? Well, what's missing is simply any exegetical support for the doctrine of eternal torment. That sounds harsh. I just mean obviously I'm making a subjective assessment of whether what he offers or whatever any other traditionalist offers is, is sound exegesis. Of course, my subjective assessment is that it is not, um, you know, when I, when I look at the sweep of scripture from start to finish, what I find on virtually every page of scripture is in one way, shape or form, a testament to the doctrine of conditional immortality in every imaginable way, in every imaginable genre, you know, any, every imaginable way you might verbalize, although in written form, um, the things that you're saying. So, um, you know, if he, so here's an example of what I mean, um, or, or, or maybe the example isn't the right word, but, you know, I've, I know other conditionalists who will do this thing where they'll say, look, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts in Scripture that talk about the final death and destruction of the wicked. And then you've got five or six that commonly get pressed into service in support of eternal torment. And they'll say, look, just put them each on a scale, right? And which way do they go? And you might find this surprising, but I push back on that and I say, no, that is not how you treat God's, you know, theopneustas word. Um, it's all from God, not just certain parts of it. And so for me, if there were even one single verse in all of Scripture that made it clear, uh, or, or maybe I should say whose best reading is that all mankind will rise bodily immortal, capable of living forever, then I'd become a, condi- a traditionalist despite the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other texts. And my contention, whether it's accurate or not, is that traditionalism has no such text. So that's what I'm waiting to see. Now, as to um, Robert's, uh, <clears throat> you asked me to comment on Robert's answer to that question. And yeah, I, I would grant him that if you're going to um, find any support for the doctrine of eternal torment, it's going to be <laughs> the book of Revelation. Um, Robert's position is that all the other passages that are raised in the debate could go either way, or at least that's the way he said it in the past. He, he may feel differently now. Um, that is not my view. But what I will say is that um, uh, the only text I think that can even possibly be read, uh, be argued to be better support for the doctrine of eternal torment than for conditional immortality and annihilationism are the two texts in Revelation. And so I totally sympathize with where he's coming from. But the reason why I don't ultimately return to belief in the doctrine of eternal torment is because it's those very passages that I find to be incredibly strong and compelling support for my view. Okay, and then, so in, in terms of the passage about the smoke of their torment rising uh, forever, can you just kind of, uh, because I wasn't here for the other conversations that you guys have uh, had on uh, CSG before, um, I'm, I'm kind of interested because, Chris, I already actually technically agree with you, um, but it was before I actually learned that there was a title of such a theory called annihilationism. Um, it, it was my conclusion from reading scripture outside of even knowing about this debate uh, that I didn't recognize any uh, support in scripture for the idea of an immortal soul just kind of being on the house uh, for all humans without exception. I saw that there was a promise for those who are in Christ to receive a life that didn't end, right? Um, and so in some sense, I already had this kind of backdrop of that, like, question, you know, uh, when I discovered this kind of debate. And so 
uh, that's one of the parts of these verses that's usually brought up. And I'm kind of curious how you would, um, and, and Robert, also, if you want to, to clarify, perhaps, um, what you mean, if you read the words, uh, for like forever or eternal, do you do do those things always refer to the soul? Or can they be referring to something else? Uh, that's my curiosity. I'm sorry, if that's a poorly formed question. But um, that that's kind of what I'm where I'm at right now, as far as uh, my understanding is, is that I, I'm, I'm curious to know, is there any way that, that, uh, that, that you could establish the eternality of the soul, uh, in, in the scriptures in that way? Well, hold on a second though. I, I want to push back, Josh, not out of any sort of disrespect for you, but, um, mm -hmm. this is this phrase immortality of the soul and the concept that it's meant to capture is in my mind, tangential, to this debate. And the reason is because mm. all of us are Christians. And what that means is as Christians, well, as far as I know, and what that means is that as Christians, <laughs> among other things, what it means is we believe that one day all humankind is going to rise from the dead. And according to the traditional yes. view, the risen wicked will remain thus risen. Now, what that means is that the doctrine of uh, eternal torment isn't just about immortality of souls. It's about immortality of resurrected persons, body mm. and soul. Um, so, uh, and what's more, I'll add that historically the phrase immortality of the soul didn't actually mean the everlasting life of the soul. What it meant was that it doesn't naturally die. So if you want to know what I mean by uh, that, just consider the fact, consider the fact that you remember that movie series, the uh, Highlander, um, the, and there are other examples of this uh, where take the elves in Middle Earth, for example, in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. They are called okay. immortals. But you know what can happen to an elf in Middle Earth or to a Highlander? They can, they can die. die in battle. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> so you what, know what, Chris? Uh, I, I caught another one of those recently, but um, you have you have that also in in any vampire story, right? You're, yeah. you're made immortal and you can be killed. Ah. And also the movie, the immortals um, where you have gods who have immortality and Titans who have immortality, but they kill each other in, in the, <laughs> in the movie. Exactly. So it, it, it's interesting to see the way that that, that language uh, even in the ancient world uh, didn't necessarily mean you're immune from, from death or being killed. It, it, it is fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Fair so, enough. So, so then, I guess my question then for for Robert uh, is 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 what what Chris just described um, what what you would agree that the 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 resurrected yeah. self being the the body spirit combo whatever that entirety of the person is that's the thing that becomes uh, let's say um, not going to die of its own accord kind yeah. of immortal. Um, but yeah, do, it, do you think then exactly. that, that it could be destroyed in some real sense? Yeah, I, I, I think God could could certainly destroy it if he wanted to. So this is this is an important clarification because oftentimes and, and Chris is is more nuanced and, and better than this. But oftentimes in some of the popular arguments, what you get is, ah, you you traditionalists, you're importing platonic notions of of an indestructible soul. And that's why you believe in eternal conscious torment. And, and uh, in reality, Chris is exactly right. What, what, we, what we base this on, and, and, and let's be fair, there, there are lots of uh, Christians who would just assume that that's the case, actually, uh, because Platonism, we know, was a huge force uh, in the history of the church uh, right. uh, go, going back right. pretty early. So, so there's, there's no question about that. So for me, what I, what I say is, no, the soul is not innately immortal. 
there isn't some aspect of humanity that that is just not going to die that um the life is is a gift from god and 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 he can take it or give it uh but the the idea of a, a universal resurrection followed by a judgment and uh again uh, with with that language from revelation where where one is either uh, uh ushered into the new creation or cast into the lake of fire where where it says they will be they will be tormented uh forever and ever uh the, it, it's it's that belief in the resurrection of of all people that is that is cr- the the cornerstone for for my perspective so uh, what is it? First Timothy six that uh, God alone has immortality, right? So uh, immortality is something that is granted, and and you know we I I would want to really nuance that language of immortality because part of the argument is is uh, the the biblical imagery and nature of uh, the Bible's life and death language and imagery throughout and this is this is a point that that we discover chris and i uh have some some somewhat profound uh different points of view on but uh i i hope i'm not rambling but yeah i think chris chris made a really helpful qualification i think that's absolutely essential and uh one place where you can see this spelled out well is in the the two views of hell book that that uh was it robert peterson and edward fudge is that right chris um where where fudge uh leveled that accusation and i don't know if he was leveling it directly at peterson but he did throw that out there and peterson made the the point very clearly that we don't believe in eternal punishment because we believe in the immortality of the soul rather we believe uh in immortality because we believe in universal resurrection and i'm paraphrasing but but he made that point very strongly yeah. Specifically, Peterson's claim was we believe in the immortality of resurrected persons yes. because of texts like Revelation. That was the that was his answer. Um, and, and just just to say a word or two in defense of Edward Fudge there, what he was alleging was not that anybody who believes in eternal torment does so because they have a, pri- a prior commitment to the immortality of the soul. And that's the claim that Peterson was responding to, which wasn't the claim Fudge was making. The claim Fudge was making is that, and, and I think this is very plausible, um, is that we all come to texts, the, the, the biblical text included, with presuppositions. And oftentimes those presuppositions are more caught than taught, right? Mm-hmm. We just, we, we, we imbibe our presuppositions by culture and by our upbringing, our parents, our church, etc. And what Fudge contends is that the Platonic idea of the immortality of the soul influenced very early Christians like Tertullian and Augustine to believe in the immortality of the soul and an everlasting hell. And they that was a presupposition for them, according to Fudge, that they thought they saw confirmed in Scripture. And yeah. so then they made biblical arguments, and those biblical arguments continue to shape how we approach the text today. And while that may or may not be accurate— Nevertheless, that's a much more nuanced claim than the one that Robert Peterson, the, the, the straw man that Peterson was burning up in that book. But anyway, um, Josh, did yeah, you need to address? Yeah. So I, I do have or? I do have one more thing that I, that I, that I want to just make sure that I'm following everything you guys said. You both agree that immortality of the personhood of someone is in resurrection, and that God can annihilate that person once they are resurrected. They don't just exist immortally. Uh, irrespective of what God decides to do with them. You both agree that God can 
destroy them. Chris, you think that he will. Robert, you think that he could, but that he is not going to. Is that true? Not destroy in that sense. He would. He, he would say yeah. God will destroy the wicked in another sense. Yes. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. Exactly. They. He. He's not raising them to life only to kill them again. Is. Is what I would say. Um, so. And, and I would. I would defend that based on, of course, my my exegesis of what of um, Matthew twenty five and and Revelation fourteen and twenty, um, but also uh, based on everything that I know about Jewish notions of resurrection that almost without exception, and of course, uh, every view seems to have been represented in the ancient world. There really is nothing new. No, no, no views that you, you come across today that seem novel are really novel. The ancients already thought of it. Uh, we're, 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 we're not that creative. Um, but uh, overwhelmingly in the Jewish sources that talk about resurrection, it is uh, the granting of immortality. And th this, that, that's um, the conclusion that N.T. Wright uh, makes very strongly in his 800-page uh, treatment of the doctrine of resurrection, uh, the, the resurrection of the Son of God. And um, that bears out in the sources with a couple of exceptions where you have, or at least seem to have, a very clear, explicit statement of universal resurrection, which, by the way, was kind of a, a minority view anyways, mm -hmm. um, but followed by... Um, the, the resurrected wicked being destroyed. And the, the one that, is, that I think is most explicit for that is Fourth Ezra. But it, it actually sticks out like a sore thumb. And when you compare it to what you have with the language in, in the book of Revelation, and uh, I think in Matthew uh, 25, uh, the, the contrasts are striking. And um, that, that, that leads me away from the view that that's, that's what John or Jesus imagined judgment would be in, in those passages. Real quick, Robert. I'll just so add, really quick, go I'll ahead, just add another exception to that alleged rule. Um, the Tosefta tract, Tractate Sanhedrin um, affirms both the universal resurrection and the annihilation of at least some wicked. But we can we can talk about that if we get to it. So you were gonna yeah, I, I, I don't know the rabbi, so I'd, I'd have to I'd have to check into that. So I'll, I'll concede that since it, yeah. <laughs> just just to clarify something, though, Robert, real quick. So it's not like yeah. people are born. And, and, you know, with the distinction between soul and body, like their souls are immortal, this is something immortality mm -hmm. happens at the resurrection, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and I think okay. actually um, I'm working on some research right now where I think that parts of Revelation, particularly at the end, are being set up over against popular Platonic ideas of the time and, and and so that that that's part of it but yeah um long story short yes chris and i are on the same page on that issue that that resurrection is necessary for immortality okay so then in some sense it's like adam before the fall it, in the sense that and i'm not trying to make a, a direct one for one there or anything like that but in just in some sense it's like if adam would have never ate he would have never died death would have never entered into you know, existence, and he would have been at that point immortal, right? Unable to die. I, well, I would, I would see that as as speculative. I'm not sure. I would, sure, I would sure. say that. Yeah. What, what's your okay. view on that, Chris? Uh, well, number one, it's not in the least speculative. It's explicit in the text of Genesis one uh, or Genesis three, uh, twenty one ish, somewhere around there. Um, God explicitly says that they he won't give them continued access to the tree of life so that they cannot live forever. But but that having we could disagree about that. That's fine. Um, what I would say is that 
we need what was the what was the question again i've already forgotten well he's asking Bas- if it was yeah oh go, go ahead go ahead tyler well basically in the resurrection oh, oh, adam, adam yeah right so mm-hmm. here's the thing i don't think that the bible uses the terminology of immortality to refer to a quality of being unable to die rather i think it uses the terminology of immortality to mean will never die so for example um the word athanasia or or the word aftharsia both of those if you're familiar with linguistics a little bit you'll recognize what's called the alpha privative at the beginning of those two words aftharsia is tharsia with a at the beginning and it means if tharsia is corruptible Aftharsia would be incorruptible or, or corrupting versus incorrupting. And phanasia, if that were a word, would be um, dying, whereas athanasia is not dying. Um, and by the way, both of those two words are used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the resurrection body specifically of believers. Um, so, no, I don't think Adam was immortal. And I don't think he, it it would have only ever been said of him that he's immortal, in my view anyway, if he weren't in fact ever going to die. And that's why you don't find the language of immortality until you talk about the resurrected person, because um, what is speculation is whether Adam would have continued to need to eat from that tree. Right. right. We don't know if at some point in, in the hypothetical future, had he continued to obey God, we don't know if God would have just suddenly removed the need for him to eat from the tree in order to go on living. He might have, in which case, yeah, he would have been immortal. But um, but what isn't speculation is that by removing his access, by revoking his access to the tree of life, God guarantees his demise. And what makes us immortal in resurrection is the fact that we will never die. That's my view. Right. And it to, and like I said in the chat earlier, the thing that pushes me personally to CI is that immortal, immortality is expressly a promise to, you know, a, a new covenant promise, eternal life. I mean, this is something that is promised to believers, right, Chris? It is, but here's the thing, and I want to be very charitable and, and fair to my interlocutor, Robert, and friend, well, yeah, as well as the course. view that he represents, because he and all other traditionalists will agree, yeah. Eternal life is something that's only given to believers. Well, that's not entirely true. You can find sloppy statements from Christians who will say things like everybody gets eternal life. It's just a matter of where you live it. Mm-hmm. I do think, by the mm-hmm. way, that's a danger of the traditional view. But the point is that's a minority um, testimony amongst you know thoughtful Christian traditionalists. Um, what thoughtful Christian traditionalists will say is that immortality, at least in one sense, the the sense the Bible uses it, and the phrase eternal life, they don't refer to what I mean by immortality, eternal life. They refer to some quality of enduring life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why, and the reason I mention that is just to say what what impresses me about the doctrine of conditional immortality vis-a-vis the topic of immortality itself is that the truth of conditionalism is communicated by more than merely the terminology, right? So we have the terminology of immortality and, and its negation, mortality, or, or the other way around. Um, we have the terminology, and yes, that is used only of believers. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a good example of that. Um, uh, and then there's the death and destruction language as well. But again, the debate is about what those terms mean. Right. But what impresses me about conditionalism is that the case doesn't rest solely on those terms. It also rests on... Um, more expansive uh, statements. So one example is Luke 20, verses 35 and 36. Jesus is um, explicit. He says that there are two groups, 
some who are considered worthy to attain to the resurrection age and others who are not. And he says that the ones who are in the eschaton, in the resurrection, cannot die anymore. And it's clear that in the that there's no disputing that in the context here, die means die, not suffer. Mm -hmm. um, or be miserable or be separated from God or something like that. It's indisputably physical death there. And what he says is it's those who are considered worthy to the of, of attaining to the resurrection age who cannot die anymore because, among other things, they are sons of God and sons of resurrection. Well, what does that imply? Mm -hmm. It implies their other group is not sons of God or not sons of resurrection and can die anymore. So uh, now I'm not, Robert can certainly come back on that if he wants, but the point that I'm simply trying to get at is that what, um, one of the things that impresses me so much about CI is that it doesn't rest solely on the definitions of terms. It rests upon these longer statements and in their contexts, which really have no other explanation besides CI. Mm -hmm. Robert, let me get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, just, just thinking about the, that example from, from Luke 20 he gave, when, when Jesus talks about those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, um, they are the ones who can no longer die. I, I just want to ask who takes part in the resurrection of the dead. Um, if, if we follow Chris's reading there to what seems to be the logical conclusion, we have a, a which is a very popular uh, view among Jewish people in, in, in the, the, the first century uh, uh, Jewish literature and and earlier that mm -hmm. only the righteous will be resurrected and uh those who are not resurrected will either simply be left in their their deceased state in in hades uh whatever um or um uh they will be they will be judged and punished as as kind of like disembodied souls or something like that there there is a diversity of, of views about that but that's actually the most common view in the in the literature is is the idea that the resurrection is restricted only to the righteous uh, but you know if, if we assume some consistency in in the new testament and um i i, I think we're we're both inclined to do so uh then then we need to say that uh, everybody is going to participate in the resurrection, but Jesus seems to be focused here on the experience of the righteous. He's talking about those who are either married or given in marriage. You know, he's being challenged by the Pharisees uh, on that regard with their little conundrum because we know they didn't believe in resurrection at all. Um, and so I, I, I think what Chris is doing with that text um, is, is something that is kind of common. And I, I read, I read the, <laughs> the narrative in... Um, in uh, Genesis, uh, the, the, those those uh, Genesis two and three very differently as well about the the literary purpose of that narrative, and I, I think we're imposing um, some philosophical systematic questions on the text that it wasn't intended to answer, and I, I think we get away from the the intention of the text quickly uh, in that way. And and I but I, I again my my view is that the 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 idea of a universal resurrection uh, creates problems for that. Yeah. So quite obviously it doesn't. Um, it only takes a logical analysis of Jesus' statement to realize the illogic in what, Robert, you just said. So notice what Jesus says. He does not say those who participate in the resurrection from the dead cannot die anymore. That would be Robert's position. What Jesus says is those considered worthy to attain to the resurrection from the dead cannot die anymore. Now that's a different statement. You can part you can rise 
in the resurrection from the dead. You can participate in it without being worthy of it. And what would happen to somebody who's not worthy of it? They wouldn't remain resurrected. And by the way, I think this is what explains the phenomena that Robert has been um, hinting at a few times in the intertestamental literature. I don't think you'll find it as, uh, I don't think you'll find it, I don't think it'll be true to say that with almost no exceptions in the intertestamental literature, to be raised is simply to be immortal. Rather, I think what you will find is that in the Jewish mind, and by the way, I think this is true in our Gentile minds today as well, to speak of the resurrection can speak of either the event or the resulting state. And if you say that somebody uh, is raised from the dead, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying they're a participant in the resurrection, because the resurrection you may consider to be the whole the, the result of being raised from the dead. Now, I'm not making an argument that that is what those texts are meaning. I'm just saying that is a way that is a possible understanding of the text that would um, both confirm what Robert said about the intertestamental literature, but at the same time be consistent with what I've, what I've been here arguing. But going back to Luke 20, again, it's simply a logical error that Robert's making. All Jesus is saying is that there are some considered worthy to attain to the resurrection from the dead, and it's only those who will be unable to die anymore, thereby controverting Robert's position. Yeah. And after Genesis 3, I'll just say this. If somebody wants to read um, Genesis 323 or sorry 322 and 23 um if somebody wants to read that and uh pretend as though i'm imposing philosophical categories on the text they can certainly do that but all no, no, no. yeah, come like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god, the lord god sent him out the text is explicit continued access to the tree of life is a necessity in in the context here for living forever. Yeah. So so Chris, you 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 missed my my point in Genesis twenty, and I I, I understand why you you responded the way you did with um, uh, Genesis three there, but that 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 wasn't the the, the point I was contesting either. So um, my point in in uh, I'm sorry in Luke twenty. Did I say Genesis twenty in Luke twenty? Uh, my point here in Luke 20 is that what Jesus is talking about is the fate of the righteous, okay? So we're, we're not talking about uh, resurrection, judgment to follow, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about uh, participation in, in the glory of, of new creation, et cetera, right? Uh, okay, and so it doesn't say the, the conclusion that you came at. You said uh, only they no longer die. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says that these people who are counted worthy, who partake in that eschatological age, in that resurrection, these who uh, are not going to be buried uh, in that age, are going to be like the angels, uh, they will not die. I, I, I think you're, you're broadening that's that. Not to, that's, that's not true. That's not true. You're, if, 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 no, it's not. So if, not. if all you did, it's not. So if all you did was look at verse 35 and you ignored verses 34 and, and, and the latter part of 36, well, then you might have a case. But number one, verse 35 is continuing a sentence that began with the sons of this age. And the sons of this age in Jesus's mouth is not a phrase referring to anybody who lives now. It's talking about the people who live now and have a certain kind of uh, character. And so he is, So this is in the context. He is talking about the righteous, but it's in contrast to unrighteous. That's sure, but, but he does not. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
Number two, the text doesn't simply say the righteous will be like angels. It says they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. So for two, for two reasons, your reading is untenable, Robert. Number one, the context of it is a contrast between two groups, only one of whom cannot die anymore. And number two, those who cannot die anymore are said to be unable to die anymore for a reason, a reason that is untrue of the unrighteous. No, I, I think you're making negative inferences here that are, are non sequiturs. Okay. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I think you're reading something into the text that it's, it's not intended to address. I, I, I think you're looking in vain I, reading the text on its own terms for, for those conclusions. Yeah. Uh-huh. Can, can, I, can I ask a question um, to, to, I guess, to Robert, because it, I guess it would tie into the, uh, the, the eternality question is, um, the, the resurrected state of, of even the wicked, um, if, if that is in fact unto, uh, a, let's say like a, like a, you know, tentative immortality to where they could be annihilated, but God chooses instead to leave them in, an, in, in, in some form of eternal state. Right. And there's, is this attached to what it would mean in some sense to retain the image of God? Do these people still have God's image? on them at, at this point, because I'm kind of, um, I know you guys were talking about something more specific, but this is something that's been uh, kind of uh, returning to the, to, to a lot of the conversations that we've been having on CSG recently. Uh, and so it's kind of burning in the back of my mind is, uh, sure. is, is, is there something, um, something about the Im- immortality of the resurrected state that is still part of what it means to be in the image of God? Um, or is that is that something that's wholly irrelevant? Like that for the wicked, the image is removed at some point. How would you view that situation? That's a good question, yeah. Josh. I, I, I think it I think it's a really interesting theological question, and the 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 easy answer is the the Bible doesn't really address whether or not they're they're in the image of God. Um, I so we have to you know do some sort of theological speculation about that. And N.T. Wright in his book Surprised by Hope. Uh, talks about this this state of of becoming you know kind of subhuman, and I'm inclined toward that uh, perspective. They've 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 lost all it is to be truly human through uh, being separated from the presence of God, and 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 that's what I think uh, in the typology and imagery of of death across the Bible, not exclusively. Like there there are plenty of texts that talk about death in terms of the cessation of of biological life, to to use one definition we might use, or the uh, privation of life, whatever we might say. Uh, but there so are also in, numerous, it, they're all, what's that? I was going to say, so then in, in their resurrected state, yeah, they, yeah. they do or do not have the image of God in, in, in what, yeah. You yeah. So, so the image of God, if we understand the image of God, the way that, that Genesis one uses it is a, a vocation as God's vice regents in the world, representing his, his presence in the world. And they're, they're, they're sent away, as, right. as Paul said, away from the presence of, of the Lord. Um, they're they're sent into exile eternally from God's presence, which is a kind of death, uh, as the imagery is used in, in Deuteronomy and in uh, Ezekiel 37, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, um, be, because they're not near to God. So there's, there's a loss of something definitional to their humanity, right? That, 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 but, you know, I, th- okay. does that mean that they don't have the image of God? Maybe you know, uh, I I wouldn't insist that it that it must mean that. 
Um, but but clearly they're not functioning. At, and I, I see the image of God primarily as a function uh, in, okay. in, in in Genesis. And so they're, you know, in that sense, they, they are not the, the image of God. But the, the history of, of what the Imago Dei is understood to be in Christianity is, is a very uh, big question. And so depending on your theological tradition, you, you might say no. Uh, it, it just depends on how you flesh that all out. Chris, what do you think about that question? Or, or is the resurrected wicked made in the image of God at, still at that point? Or is there something that's changed about, uh, about them? My position is, um, firstly, that I agree with Robert. The image of God, although it is hotly contested throughout church history, um, there's really only one position that actually rests on the biblical evidence, and that is the functional view. Um, there, may be, there, there may be more to the image of God, but the only thing that's in the text is that we're created in the image of God so as to be his vice regents on earth, right? To, to exercise dominion as his representative over all creation. Um, but what I will say is this. Sometimes believers in eternal torment do use the, the image of God as support for the doctrine of hell, uh, of eternal torment and hell specifically, um, as if somehow God wouldn't deign to annihilate something created in his image. But this is simply false, and, it, and it is in, it's untenable in light of the biblical data, because if you look at Genesis chapter, um, what is it, chapter 8, it's, it's after the uh, flood narrative, um, look at Genesis 9, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, God says, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So in the only place in the whole Bible where God's image and mortality or immortality are connected, it's mortals who bear God's image. So that's number one. So, so that the image of God can't be pressed into service in support of the of eternal torment. But what I will, but but also there are people like N.T. Wright um, who hold to a view that has sometimes been called the dehumanization view. Jonathan Pritchard at Trinity Seminary calls it the um, eternal conscious Golem-ing view. Golem being the uh, alter ego, if you will, of Smeagol in Lord <laughs> yeah. of the Rings. But anyway, um, and and according to that view, yes. The, the wicked in hell do eventually cease to bear the image of God. But, he, but here's the problem with that. If they cease to bear the image of God, there's no more grounds for punishing them. Because in that very text I just read, it's bearing God's image that makes us accountable, morally accountable. So I don't think the dehumanization view works because then there'd be no more ground for continuing to punish them once they no longer bear the image of God. And it also can't lend, it can't be leveraged in support of the doctrine of eternal torment. But what can be said, and, and, and I, I mean this, I don't think that there's an argument to be made from the image of God to conditional immortality. I just think there's no conflict with conditional immortality. Yeah, yeah I agree. Okay. Well, just 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 to to bring this out here, we're getting close. We're getting real close to the uh, to the like two minute warning mark. Uh, if we're mm -hmm. if we're not already there, and so uh, I, I think I think to kind of to wrap things around full full uh, full closure, Tyler, what what do you think about what's been established so far in in, in tonight's discussion, bro? I think to be perfectly honest, there was there there was a lot, and and I want to go back listen to all the episodes again and and really and really take into consideration what's being said because it's not it's not the normal 
conversation. Chris and Robert both bring a level uh, that that we just don't see too often whenever it comes in, you know, to these types of conversations. But they bring a level of passion and of academic discipline. I think it's, to it, this. They're, they're really oriented toward detail, is what I'm noticing. Is that both uh-huh. of them are very very detail-oriented in the way they listen and in yeah. the way that they formulate their responses. And I can really appreciate that too, yeah. Absolutely. And so I want to thank you guys so much for coming on and doing this. Again, we're going to have to do it again. I mean, we just will. But we will see you guys next time on The Complete Center's Guide. I've been your host, Tyler Fowler. With me, Joshua Davidson, Robert Wiesner, Chris Date. Thank you guys. We will see you next time. God bless. Good night. And see ya.